Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Buying a home can feel like navigating uncharted waters. Redfin agents can help. They'll answer your questions with honest advice so you know exactly what you're getting into. They'll also help you tour as many homes as you want and show you what it takes to make a winning offer. With a Redfin agent on your side, you can sail straight to your dream home. Local expertise from Redfin. That's real estate done right. Tour subject to property and agent availability. Virginia Office Falls Church, VA. 844-759-7732. Hello, my name is Dave Hanratty and there will be no popcorn. Welcome to the No Popcorn Podcast, the offshoot of the No Encore Podcast. It's all about movies and music and I must start by apologising to the listener for having to endure some Motley Crue to kick us off because that's right, we said we were going to come back and do Straight Outta Compton. We are, but also it has been pointed out to us that we should probably tackle Netflix's warts and all disgusting deep dive into the world of Motley Crue. Joining me to do both of those things is David Higgins. I'm very excited to do so as well. Are you? Not too much with the dirt. You kind of pushed for it a little bit. I mean, like you said, it kind of it felt like something a lot of people were watching. Um, it's a very famous book, um, and it kind of felt like it had to be addressed. Okay, we will do that, and we'll put a strict time limit on it. But first, uh, I guess our usual thing on this one, uh, what have you been watching lately? Um, well, we've both seen a movie in the cinema. We have, we have slightly differing views on it. Um, you, you, have a, you have a take, a, a us take. Would yeah, you like to Jordan, share it with the Jordan Peele's Us, the follow up to Get Out. I guess first of all, how did you feel about Get Out? Um, I loved it. I gave it a rewatch there quite recently, and still holds up. Works on lots of different levels. Um, it's a good thriller. It's very funny. It's very clever. 
um, great performances. Yeah, I think it's all those things. I think it is very rewatchable. When I saw it in the cinema, I was still writing for State Magazine. May it rest in peace. I gave it four out of five. I remember because I edited that review. <laughs> no way. I mean, you're like it's five, Dave. Um, no, I, 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 I'd still stand by a four on that. Yeah, I mean, like I think it's an excellent film. I just think the third act is a bit perfunctory and weak. And I don't think it's like the reinvention or elevation of horror that didn't exist previously. It is great, though, and it does hold up very well in a rewatch. So, you know, hype levels high for us comes out quite quickly in terms of the turnaround. Like two years, I think, is the exact time in, in which this has happened. And of course, Jordan Peele pretty much has a blank check now in Hollywood to do whatever he wants. A lot of people like this movie, us. I thought it was really, really bad. I thought it was uh, bordering on terrible in places. I mean... Where do you start? I thought it was just a serious dropped ball by comparison to what came before. Um, really clunky in lots of ways. I didn't find it scary. I didn't really care about any of the characters. Um, I guess we're probably not going to go into spoilers because it's still on general release. Yeah. But like, there were some reveals even early enough in the movie that I was just kind of knocked down with. And then by the end of it, it just descended into Exposition City. And it was like, stop explaining everything. Like, stop uh, like doing this Bond villain monologue bullshit. Oh, and like then there's a big twist, which you know is so dumb and doesn't belong in the movie. There's elements to it that which I just found kind of mean spirited and nasty. Like there's like an execution scene basically of like a white family. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for like reversals of tropes that have existed for years. But this just felt kind of clumsy. And even like there's kind of comedic elements to it that aren't actually funny. I just thought it had nothing to say. I thought it lumbered along. And it didn't really have much to show for it, and ultimately was quite stupid. And the allegories are so fucking obvious. Like, yeah, I. The funny thing is, I kind of I disagree with you thinking that it's terrible, but I didn't particularly love it either. It's like it's incredibly flawed. I find that um, Jordan Peele was very much reaching to say something. I kind of feel that he's he's almost tried to create something that's in the pop culture, like everything about Get Out. Um, after it, the the sunken place. Rose Give Me the Keys have become part of the greater popular culture and I kind of feel like he was reaching with that with like the idea of the tethered and it being a thing that people will start using now in day to day to like describe political situations um, I, yeah, think, I think that will happen though it will absolutely yeah. Um, but yeah a very 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 messy film I really like the performances in it I think it looks great I think the first 45 minutes of it is really really strong particularly that opening scene with the uh, the younger the younger Adelaide at the, at the boardwalk everyone's praising that I thought it dragged really I was like get to the fucking fireworks factory <laughs> would you I don't know what it was I just I didn't I wasn't on board with it and I mean like I mean like it's so overdone as well like, I mean there's a part of the where one character says to another like imagine growing up in a world without, without Sky and I was like that's a really brilliant line that's really poetic there's so much in that and then you get two more lines saying the same thing I just needed a fucking editor or something yeah it was incredibly incredibly long and very, very, very baggy and loose in the in the final third. Yeah, uh, people love it though, and it's done very, very well. And I'm not giving up on Jordan Peele or anything ridiculous like that, but I was just so let down. I just thought once I realised what where it was going and what it was saying, I was like, oh no. And then like by the end of it, like the final shot of the movie, I was like, oh come on, you know, like it this is, is not good. Uh, something that is good. Um, I went to see a movie last week. Have you heard of the movie Mining the Gap? The name is familiar, but I couldn't tell you anything more than that. It um. It's a documentary set in Rockford, Illinois, about uh, three friends who grew up there. Um, the director, Bing Liu, is one of them. And he's basically been filming his him and his two other friends since they were teenagers, some before teenagers, and they're skateboarders. So at face value, it just looks like, oh, this movie's going to be about friendship, camaraderie. And it is that. It's a very, very well shot movie. Like one thing about 
kind of skateboard culture is that they've always been quite creative in filming how they do things and this is amazing just like massive panoramic shots of skating through the streets feels like very very uh free um it kind of pivots later in the act into kind of looking at the fact that it's sort of revealed that all the men involved have been involved in uh, domestic abuse in some cases whether it being happening to them or it's revealed that one of them might actually be kind of going down that road and it was quite quite surprising because i just thought it was like going to be a pretty fun watching dudes drink beer board around but um highly recommend it it only lasted like a week here which is a shame mm. um and yeah i believe it was nominated for an oscar but didn't win Okay, uh, I'll look out for it. Thank you for your recommends. And thank you to everyone who's said nice things about the No Popcorn offshoot so far. Got a lot of good feedback about the Metallica episode. People really liked it. Um, I wasn't sure if it was great, but it turns out people liked it. So there you go. Uh, and it prompted other people to go and watch it as well. That's, you know, well, that's always good if we can get people watching some kind of monster. If you just reach we've done our job. Yeah, you can spread the, the, the some kind of monster infection around the world. Um, yeah, so if you like music and movies and uh, movies about music where they kind of tangentially feature it, tell your friends about this one. And of course, no popcorn, the parent show. So what we're going to do is, like I say, Straight Outta Compton is the main event here for sure. But like WrestleMania, we're going to pack in some extra footage and extra bonus content for you in the form of the dirt. So uh, I'm going to, I've got a stopwatch here and I'm vowing to only speak about this movie for 20 minutes maximum because... That's a hard max. It's not minimum, it's maximum. So like, you know, if we get this done in five minutes, then great. But it's not worth a full episode. So let's start now. How do you think this film would do if it was in cinemas? Um, I don't think very well. It doesn't have, it doesn't have star power. It really doesn't. Um... You know, the the thing about the Netflix phenomenon is that the the buzz around them and a lot of the stuff that kind of does get buzzy, it's like the ease of access. So you get home from work, you open Netflix, and this is basically plastered on your screen. You're like, maybe I'll give it a give it a go. Um I think if it got a cinematic release, it doesn't have like it doesn't have firepower in its cast, it doesn't have firepower in its director. It's about a band that like not many people like they, it, they have their fans, but like they don't tend to, you know, cross borders of people who like other kind of music. They're like, oh yeah, but yeah, Motley Crue are cool as well. Um, I would struggle to name you five songs, maybe even three. Yeah. I've never got down with the crew. I've had some friends who liked Motley Crue, and I it just never understood the vibe. It's like the the start of this film starts with them talking about how shitty the 80s were and it's like yeah it's because of you guys <laughs> <laughs> okay so this is based on a book called the dirt of course yes uh, have you read it i have read it i read it about uh 10 or 12 years ago how it's, disgusting is it it's utterly repugnant but a very very compelling read um we've kind of talked about a bit before um in rock music there is particularly in uh, biographies, not so much autobiographies, to, to lionise, to to say how great to talk about the, the myths and legends of rock music. This is basically just like, they'll happily admit that they were all dirtbags. Um, they're incredibly candid about what they were doing, which was like criminal, disgusting. So in that sense, you, you come out of the book hating them, but also not being able to stop turning pages. Um, it was written by Neil Strauss of The Game, Fame. Vile. <laughs> so could you recommend this book? Um, I mean... Should I read it? Probably. Yeah, I like it. It is It is a very interesting book. Um, uh, kind of some of the, the, the moments in it are touched upon here. A lot of them aren't. Um, 
Yeah, like I kind of feel like uh, as far as rock biographies go, it's probably the m- most interesting one that I've read. Okay, so in 30 seconds, explain who Motley Crue were and why they're so notorious. Um, Motley Crue were a, I guess, hair metal band from uh, Los Angeles. They kind of, they were kids who like grew up on the strip. Um, so we have Nikki Six uh, started this band with Tommy Lee as a drummer. They brought in um, an older an older member of the band, Mick Morris, was their guitar player. Um, and then they found a singer, Vince Neil, who was kind of doing like covered the cover band shows that were apparently just at these lovely palatial parties in the Hollywood Hills. Okay, that's um, about 30 seconds. <laughs> uh, Notor- Notorious, I guess, the dirt kind of covered the last back. So yeah, as you say, uh, formed to raise some hell and did it quickly. And essentially, like, you know, had this reputation for being these hard-rocking fuck machines who, you know, didn't really respect authority or women. So the film... Uh, which has come out, stars uh, Machine Gun Kelly as Tommy Lee. I believe he goes as Colson Baker, though. He does. You've got Douglas Booth as Nikki Six, who I would contend is way too pretty to look like Nikki Six. Absolutely. You've got Ewan Rowan of Game of Thrones fame sporting the worst wig I've ever seen as it's... as Mick Mars. <laughs> he played Ramsay Bolton in Game of Thrones, and now he's Mick Mars. And you have some bloke as uh, Vince Neil, who I believe was in the first season of The Punisher. And uh, this was driving me crazy all movie. I was like, who does this guy look and sound like? It's a young Dean Ambrose, I think. That's a good shout. My my wrestling knowledge isn't as up-to-date as yours. I tend to be more of a 90s man. But yeah, I know Ambrose. <laughs> and yeah, I can see it. So um, I'm going to freewheel here a bit because I took loads of notes. Much like the Metallica one, I wrote down loads of things. And then I forgot my notebook, so I don't have it with me. But I will say this. After approximately an hour into the film, I stopped taking notes out of protest. It's a legitimate <laughs> thing that happened. I was just like, I've nothing else to say about this. Yeah, I mean, it's a... So, yeah, it's directed by Jeff Tremaine, who is known mostly for making Jackass movies. Um, do you like the Jackass movies, just on a quick side tangent? Of course not, but obviously when you were in school, it was a certain thing. And the first one obviously had a certain charm, but then it was like, let's see about that, lads. So you can, I can kind of see why he was a, a choice for this movie, because those movies are essentially about dumb idiots doing dumb things but they kind of depending on how you look at it like they can be kind of charming like their their knuckleheadedness has a small bit of a charm to it so maybe that was the idea bring this to motley crew bring this to these you know hard drinking fuck machines as you said um but from the start it's just like this is so bland looking yeah it looks terrible it looks like a tv show uh, and we'll get to that in part two of this episode, I think. But, I mean, it it is from the get-go, like from the off, it's clearly a lionization. There's very little condemnation of this behavior apart from, you know, hey, this isn't really healthy, is it? Like, they're just dicks and they're, they're horrible to everyone and women don't get names in this movie. No, they, they live under tables to give fellatio. Yeah, they exist to be fucked. And it's like, there's at least two instances of like... Uh, this trope, which also shows up in Straight Outta Compton, and I guess it's a real, like, don't get me wrong, I'm sure it's reflective of the life, but, like, the moment where someone's backstage, I'm like, hey, where's my girlfriend? Hey, where's the singer of the band? Cut to dressing room, and it's like, okay, cool, and then, you know, some bloke is, like, fucking cooked from behind a door or something, and they're like, yeah, he's a rock star, you're not. And in that, in this movie, the role of the guy who's like the loser that they kind of haze and I guess like fuck his girlfriend and treat him like shit is played by Pete Davidson. Yeah, so he's their I guess the A and R rep who who why signs you, them. Why are you hiring Pete Davidson to be like a straight man? Yeah, uh, it's a very very strange role. Like I I've never, I don't watch a lot of SNL. Don't particularly like it, so I don't have a huge 
um, experience of what Pete Davidson can bring to a role, but there's nothing for him to bring here. Like he literally, in his introduction to Motley Crue and to signpost to the fact that he works for a record label, he's like, hi, do you guys want a recording deal? And like, that's the level of dialogue you're getting in this film. Uh, yeah, as for Pete Davidson, I mean, like, I don't watch SNL, but I've seen some of his kind of weekend update stuff. And I find him actually quite charming. I, I think he's got a certain personality. I think he's genuinely funny at times. I'm um, not much for stand-up comedy, and I'm not saying he's a great or anything, but like I'd be on his side. I think he got a real raw deal with the Ariana Grande stuff in terms of people telling him to fucking kill himself and that kind of thing. Not okay. Um, but yeah, he's the butt of every joke in this movie, and it's mostly just a, a, a series of gross-out competitions while trying to get some very, very thin character details. They go through the life of a band in their stead. They have success. They fight. They, they get addicted to drugs. They cheat on their spouses. Uh, there's a car crash. They kill a man. Yeah, they kill a man, which is real, of course. This is real. And who gets killed, exactly? It's um, He's from Hanoi Rocks. His name is... I think... Ooh, should be respecting... Uh, Razzle. Razzle, or, yeah. He was the drummer in Hanoi Rocks, I believe. Yeah, so he, he gets a brief introduction uh, with the aforementioned woman who lives under the table. And that's his introduction. And in the next scene, he is killed in a car crash when Vince Neil is fucked up and goes across the Meridian. Yeah, I think in my notes at this point I wrote, and now it's time for vehicular manslaughter with Vince Neil. Um, so yeah, he killed a man and got three weeks in jail. A slap on the wrist, yeah. <laughs> for killing a man. Like, fucking hell. Yeah, the the level of stuff that they get away with in this is just, like, it's insane. Um, Trashing hotel rooms, throwing pianos in cars, and, you know, basically committing rape. But, like, you know... I say that, allegedly. I'm sure nothing like that happened for sure, absolutely. Nikki well, Six is currently denying things. Well, it is It is one of the things that is mentioned in the book that, um, and they mention it happening once, and I'll mention it happening twice, but it wouldn't surprise you, uh, with the way things were going on, that Nikki Six was having sex with someone in a closet, and he left it, and he was like, oh, I'll be back in a minute, and swapped with Tommy Lee, who went in and had sex with the woman, who then the next day rang him and was basically like, I think I was raped last night. And then at first he was like, oh, did I rape her? And then he realised what had happened. He's like, oh no, it's okay. It was Tommy. This is a horrific anecdote, which isn't in the movie. It is not in the movie, no. Um, yeah, like there's some... There's only one scene, I think, of uh, Tommy Lee uh, hitting a girlfriend, but obviously oh, and, and you're completely of- no mention of his relationship with Tommy Anderson, which does appear in the book quite a lot. Yeah, and- so the Tommy Lee bit, like, yeah, he punches... Tommy Lee is introduced in this movie as, like, a wide-eyed kid with big dreams, and... It has a sensitive side, you know, like, it's kind of like the gag is that, like, oh, he, he's a romantic, he wants to fall in love, he's a hopeless romantic, while all the lads are just out to get fucked, apart from Mick Myers, who is miserable and has back problems. And he has a degenerative back disease. Yeah. And-, and he looks down on these kids. Um, so, essentially, Tommy Lee, like, has a fiancé at one stage, and this fiancé gal gets insulted by Tommy Lee's mother. Uh, she's introduced, by the way, cheating on Tommy Lee with Nikki Six. And then, ultimately, there's a fight on a, on a tour bus in which she calls Tommy Lee's mother a cunt. Repeatedly. And Tommy Lee can take no more and punches her in the face. And there's sad music as he walks away. And you're meant to feel sorry for him for doing this? Yeah, it's... it's I think. <laughs> like, it's not very well presented. No, I didn't. Like, uh, the fiancé is definitely put in the position where she's the bad person in the scene and he was... You know, sticking up for the honor of his mother by hitting a woman. Yeah, she's never seen again. Um, How did you find the scene with Ozzy Osbourne? That's because uh, you, you'd heard about that before, course, had you? Yeah, so, yeah. Tell them what, what happens. Um, they're on tour with Ozzy, um, and they are by a pool, and Ozzy comes along. He's very drunk. He moons an elderly couple and offers to buy them drinks by putting a $20 bill in his ass, and... 
then comes along and he's like, oh, I need some coke. And the, the lads are like, oh, I'm all out. So he decides that he sees a, a line of red ants by the pool. He snorts them and then urinates on the ground and drinks it. And then Nikki Six urinates on the ground and he drinks that too. Yeah. A madman, that Aussie. There you go. I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, like, when you've read the stories, like, I knew that one. And, like, ultimately, it's just you're just seeing, like, someone pretending to do this. So I, I don't know how to feel about it. I had no emotional reaction to that. I had no emotional reaction to the really, really poor handling of Vince Neil's child dying of cancer, which, of course, it happened. Yeah. But the film now wants you to feel sorry for this fucking bozo. And it does so by introducing a daughter who is there to die. And you're like, I just felt like I was watching actors in bad wigs and like sentimental music plays. And there was no sense of like anything to this apart from just people in costumes doing shit. I didn't buy anybody. I didn't think anybody was good in this movie. I didn't think it had anything to say. I felt ultimately it was, it, it was you know, charmed by these guys. There's a couple of okay touches. Like there's a sequence where Tommy Lee shows you an average day in the band's life and the camera's kind of, it's almost like yeah. he's a GoPro strapped to him. Machine Gun Kelly is probably the best he's, person in this. He's actually Because he, he gets bad. closest to, like Tom, Tommy's voice in the book is that he's so juvenile because it's all, there. it's written basically Tommy has a chapter, Vince has a chapter, Mick has a chapter, uh, Nikki has a chapter and Tommy's chapter is... Literally, it just sounds like you're listening to a frat boy. And I think Machine Gun Kelly gets that quite well. Yeah, he does. He has charisma, for sure. For, like, you know, someone who I never have seen act before. Didn't do a bad job. No. Um, and ultimately, it's just scene after scene of excess. I don't know. I mean, there's a couple of okay touches. Like, I like the bit where, you know, to show you the passage of time and how much these guys have waned. They're practicing in a rehearsal space. And outside, there's this massive mural of Pearl Jam's 10 <laughs> album. And I was like, that's not too bad. That indicates something to me because I know what that album yeah. meant and it meant, you know, the death of this kind of music and whatever. But, like, it felt like a chore to watch this thing, you know? It really, really was from the from the get-go. Um, even, like, on a on a very superficial level, like like you mentioned, wigs, costumes. Um, it's cheap. It's so, so cheap. Um, particularly, I find, like, Nikki Six and Mick Myers all look like variations on Noel Fielding. Like, <laughs> yeah, I saw really someone do. describe the way McMars uh, uh, looks in this film as like pound shop, bab- pound shop, Babadook. <laughs> <laughs> it's comical. I mean, like, it really is. And like, I don't know. Like, you and Rowan like is trying his best, I suppose. I don't know how good of an actor he is because, like, obviously Ramsey Bolton was mustache twirling and horrible, and this is just nothing. I mean, there's nothing really to to ground yourself with here. There's no real narrative. It's just, let's get through the greatest hits of this band and also let's cut out a lot of the really fucked up shit while also presenting you with gross out scenes and like, here they are now doing this. And I don't know what I was supposed to root for. Um, You know, it it just doesn't really capture anything. It it feels really rote. And I think people do like this film. It's obviously gotten very mixed reviews, but I've seen people be like, that was really like fun and entertaining. And like, oh, these guys. And I'm like, these guys are scum. Yeah. Like it's certainly one of the like one of the worst movies I've seen in quite some time. Yeah, I really hated it, and nothing felt authentic or whatever. And I don't know, like, could you have could you have made this thing better? I don't know. I I don't know. I mean, bigger budget, better director, better actors. I don't know. You're still getting the same fucking thing. I think you have to reckon with what they were actually like, and but again, like who like who wants to watch that movie? Like, as at the same point, if you if you want to share candidness of the book it'll be a fucking rough watch there's even a bit at the end where uh 
it's like outtakes or something at the end, B-roll and stuff. Yeah. And you get a bit where like uh, Machine Gun Kelly dressed up as Tommy Lee, it goes into a bathroom and goes back in a minute and then like cuts to the real Tommy Lee coming out of the bathroom because they're, you know, they're all involved, they're all having a good time. Yeah, yeah. it has that trope of um, these movies where they'll like side by side, like actual photos to be like, look, we actually did a pretty good job here. Well, they really didn't. Yeah, no, they didn't. Well, there you go. Uh, we got through it in less than 20 minutes anyway, thankfully. Beautiful. That's The Dirt. I never need to see it again. I wouldn't recommend it. Please don't watch it. Don't support the career of Motley Crue. They were fucking dreadful. So, we'll move into our main event. So as promised, it's time for Straight Outta Compton, a film I saw in Cineworld back in 2015. Did you see it in the cinema? I did. Saw it in the lighthouse. Wow. The better cinema. The better cinema. Wow, okay, interesting. Uh, yeah, so I rewatched this just last night, so it's very fresh in my brain. And I remember like leaving the cinema and not being terribly impressed by it, but I think it, it is very popular. People did like it. Um, I guess to start off with, like, what was your kind of immediate kind of take on the rewatch? Um, it... Went down a little bit in my estimation. Um, I quite liked it when I first saw it. I thought it was pretty good. Um, the rewatch, and I guess maybe just digging into it a bit more, um, the, the the latter half of it really drags. I find the first hour really propulsive. Um, yep, you're stealing my lines here, man. <laughs> this is legit what I was saying Where do you think your notes time. went? Uh, I, have, I have notes for this one, but they're on my phone this time, so thankfully I have them. Uh, give me some background on this one. How did it come to pass? Um, it doesn't actually have a very interesting um, genesis. Um, Ice Cube has obviously been making movies since Friday. He's been producing a lot, like... The multiple Friday films, the Are We There Yet, the ride-alongs, and back in 2009, he was originally kind of talking to John Singleton about making a movie uh, about NWA. Singleton fell out, and then it was kind of a toss-up between a couple of other directors, Craig Brewer, who did Hustle & Flow, Peter Berg, and eventually they settled with F. Gary Gray, who had directed um, Friday for Cube. He'd also directed a couple of music videos for Dre, and Dre had appeared in one of his movies, Set It Off. So he's he's been close to um, Cube and Dre for basically since they came up. Was there much clamor for this outside of the guys involved? I mean, I guess people wanted to see the story. Like, how revered are NWA from like a multiplex point of view? Yeah, that, that's an interesting one. Um, certainly more so in America um, than globally, I would imagine. They're like an incredibly important band for... Uh, you know, an important time in American history, kind of coming post Reagan, early uh, Bush Senior. You had L.A. Riots, Rodney King, so they were so both controversial and important for people around that time. That it's kind of also getting into like a little bit of like nostalgia. You know, you're starting to see the '80s were having their come around, early '90s were having their come around. So there was definitely an appetite for them. Yeah, I mean, with regards to even like the way this film starts, you say propulsive, it absolutely is. It's got an incredibly dramatic sequence that kicks us off where we see Easy e slinging dope or whatever he's doing. And he's in a very volatile house situation where guns are being pulled. And next thing you know, 
a fucking SWAT team with a tank, like, a tank, yeah, comes out and like, uh, I'm I'm sitting there and I'm like, how much of this is real? I mean, like, how much poetic license does this film take? I wonder because obviously with movies like this all the time, and I think you know. Bohemian Rhapsody, Bo Raps is an example of this. Uh, the Dirt is an example of this. You know, like you got to elevate some certain things. You got to almost invent stuff wholesale. Are you th- saying that the tank was invented? I mean, did this happen? The t- the tank was a thing. Um, so, like post, that would have been. I don't know my war terms. I think something akin to an APC that would have been in like Vietnam. And post that, they needed something to do with it. So some cops started to get to use it, and the crash cops. Um, in California, which was like communities resistance, resistant against street hoodlums. Um, <laughs> oh, they hell. started using it. So they took the turrets off them and then replaced it with the battering ram. Okay. Um, so you you kind of see a lot of it now, like very, very highly militarized police presence, particularly in LA to deal with gang violence around that time. So it's very, very dramatic, but it's very, very plausible that something like that would happen. It's a good opener, although it has a concerning element to it in that like, there's two instances in this scene of women being literally uh, knocked around the place. Like, there's one uh, who gets hit by a fridge door and but- and belted to the ground as he's trying to make his escape. And then the battering ram takes the door out and knocks a woman into a wall. And you're like, hmm. Not a great start. <laughs> Not a great start. Uh, but then you get the straight out of Compton on the screen and the parental advisory style logo, which, you know, is fairly good. You know, works. Yeah, Definitely, I, I think know. it's a really, really... Uh Really good start to it. I think this, like, it's weird. The first hour, um, this movie, I think, looks really good in the first hour. And then you have your reservations about it being a TV movie, um, possibly it, yeah. throughout. I I see that a little bit more in the, in the back end of it. The, the start of it is, like, very, very beautiful. Like, that scene is staged really well. Some early scenes with uh, cops kind of brutalizing um, the members are shot really well. And then the back half is kind of like... The, the palette is just like VH1. I did find myself re-watching this in the first era, kind of being like, wait, this is actually pretty fucking good. And then, yeah, we'll get to that too. Yeah. But, okay, so everyone in the in the band gets like a Hollywood intro. Well, mostly. I mean, like you get the easy, you know, narrowly escaping in a very cinematic, uh, dramatic police raid. You get Dr. Dre uh, first introduced lying down on a bunch of records, as we all do, with headphones on, you know, like to indicate that we like music. Bathing in sunshine while Ray airs. Everybody loves the sunshine is playing. Oh, it's this is like, a needle drop movie. Oh yeah, and like to be but fair, they, I love that's a great needle drop. Oh, there's, there's some <laughs> phenomenal needle drops in this. Like you know, there's some great great tunes. Um, so then he flees an abusive home. Um, he has a younger brother who doesn't get sketched out much until the plot needs him to, and we'll get to that. Ice Cube is riding rhymes on the school bus as a gangster pulls up and gets on with a gun and scares everybody who is being heckled from the side. Um, I, I will say at this point, you know, like these are our primary three: Easy. Dr. Dre Ice Cube. There are, of course, two other members of the group, uh, MC Ren and DJ Yella. But, uh, they're not really in this movie. They're not really there. They're just, they're just there. They're on the periphery. Also, uh, not on the producer credits of this film. Which makes a lot of sense. There was a sixth member of NWA at the start. Arabian of Prince. Arabian Prince. Yes. Not in the movie. Also, well, apparently he's there in a scene. I don't know if he was ever referred to by his name, but he was cast by an actor. Hmm. Sorry, he was cast. There is someone playing him. Okay, well, I guess casting is something we should we should look at. So, I've written down in my notes in block capitals uh, upon the arrival of Ice Cube, I heart O'Shea Jackson Jr. Yeah, I, I love he, him. He is amazing in this. And do you know what? Because we we've talked, we 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 have a very soft spot for O'Shea Jackson. Jr. He hasn't done that much. He's made three <laughs> films that we've seen, but the, so he comes onto the scene with this. He's fantastic in this movie. Um, He's great. 
and he's like he's literally born to play the role like Quite it's literally. insane how much he looks like his dad and sounds like him and moves like him and everything and he just owns it he he does i think he he has far more vulnerability than his dad his That's, dad yeah. very very stone faced while he there's something in his smile that just is so welcoming i mean i'm talking to the preachers that converted here with I'm you. I'm such a fan. I don't know what it is. I mean, like, okay, so like, uh, he's oh, he's great in this and then I was like, he's one to keep an eye on. Like, will he get out of this shadow that he's instantly in? I think he already has even though he's done very little. So like, he's in a film called Angry Goes West which he's is very good in that. It's a recommend. It's a good movie. Aubrey Plaza, Elizabeth Olsen kind of about the, you know, the fears and the the perils that come with Instagram stalking and developing, you know, fucking standing for something that you don't even know. He plays a character who's, like, kind of comical. Uh, he's basically, like, a landlord uh, stoner type, but he's got this Batman obsession. He wants to write Batman comics. It's amazing. He's obsessed with Batman forever. He's so relentlessly charming in that film, and it carries over. Like, um, he's in the he's in Den of Thieves, your favorite film? Well, it's a, it's a big oh. film for us. A big Tuesday night movie for us. <laughs> All two and a half hours of it. The uh, I think it was Brian Lloyd who said the uh, the protein shake version of Heat. Um so uh, which you know again, I mean like it's I'm not I'm not here to to say Danny Thieves is a good movie, but I'm not here to say that it's so trash. I, did, I hated it. I I had a really good time watching that movie. I was very much surprised by how enjoyable it was. A lot going on. I know Jay Jackson Jr is one great element to it. Uh, he's good value on Twitter. Big wrestling fan. I have not followed. Dude, he's like freaking out about like what's going on right now. Like he's he's so happy for Kofi Kingston, you know, he's like he's he's all about it. Like uh, like yeah, he's great. Uh so like more of him please. He's up, he's in the upcoming Godzilla King of the Monsters. So does that mean that he in, there is three members of NWA in the shared King Kong Godzilla universe cuz yeah, Jason lads. Mitchell and Corey Hawkins were in uh Kong Skull Island. Um, which uh, Mick Pope of the Galaxy fame is like, no, no, you've said it wrong because he refers to the posters and how bunched up everything was and he goes, it's Kong Skull Island. Like, it's just like, like this whole big thing. So yeah, much love for O'Shea Jackson Jr. Corey Hawkins, who you mentioned there. We saw him in Black Klansman recently in one of the better scenes of a movie that we didn't like. Yeah, um, he's good in this. Um, uh, I'd argue that he's, that he's not. I would also argue that Dr. Dre is a pretty boring person. So is, he yeah, like, doesn't is, have a lot to work is with. Is that the thing, though? Because it's funny. I think like, it is. I think Dr. Dre is one of the most boring people. That's amazing, because like, on a recent No Encore, Dahi like, made this claim kind of very casually, as if it was like this kind of known thing. Everyone's like, yeah, Dr. Dre is really boring. And I'm like, is he? Yeah, like, well, number one, so doesn't write his own rhymes, so has nothing to say. <laughs> you know, great production. Um, but apart from that, he's just like, he's a businessman. He just He's like, I want to be a billionaire. It's like, cool. Good for you. <laughs> I just I I don't I, I there's nothing about him that I find you interesting. Can't identify with him, yeah. Not even identify with him. Just anything so, of interest. So you think it's the material? I don't know. I I felt that like particularly rewatching this and really focusing on like the characters and how they how they integrate and and and, and what they kind of stand for. I suppose I just felt Corey Hawkins was fine. I thought he looked good, but didn't really do much. You know, he certainly. Up against um, O'Shea Jackson and Jason Mitchell plays Easy E. Of the three, he is the worst. True. I thought Jason Mitchell was fantastic in this. He's really, really good. I'm surprised he kind of hasn't got a bump off this and been in a bit more. Yeah. Um, He's so like he embodies Easy E. Like it's ridiculous. Like it's incredible. And like, where do they find him? <laughs> not to not to skip to the end, but like his borderline his death scene is fantastic like i found it really hard to watch yeah, yeah I was like, really 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 affecting um yeah, extremely tragic like and you're ta- you're just taking this um you know you're introduced he's like tough 
pushing on drug deals, like just just firecracker of a person um, who's all bravado all the time, never lets it drop. And then you just have that in the last 10, 15 minutes. And he absolutely nails it. It's such a good punch. I mean, like, so yeah, the top three, uh, because again, they are the top three. I mean, that you had like in the producers very close to F. Gary Gray in this movie, you had Cube, you had Dre, and you had um, uh, Tamika Watkins-Wright, is that her name? Tamika Woods-Wright. Tamika Woods-Wright, sorry. uh, She is the widow. Yes. Easy. So, like, they were heavily involved with the production of this movie. Obviously, would have had some veto power and a lot of influence, and it shows in in that regard. So, yeah, the the other two members of NWA don't really get much to do. No, but I mean, in fairness, particularly DJ Ella, you could say he was always kind of behind the the production and the turntables with Dre, and it was always Dre running that. He was kind of just the side guy, and Ren, not the greatest rapper. So, and again, like, not not. Not influential, like the other three incredibly influential went on, apart from obviously Easy, to do things and to kind of shape hip hop going forward. Yeah. The other two lads, so not so much. We're saying well cast, all five? I think so. I think so. I think this movie across the board is incredibly well cast. Like whoever the casting director is needs to take, you know, a round of applause. Even something as simple as like the cops who are cast, even the cops who like don't have anything to say, but they just found these white dudes for the most part. And they're such a menacing presence, um, particularly the cop in the Detroit scene who gives him the speech. He's fantastic. I don't know who that guy is, but like he he, he looks like a guy who like just didn't get called back to be a regular Sons of Anarchy yeah. cast member. Um, he's fantastic, like so memorable in that scene, and him looking on, fantastic. So yeah, across the board, um, they found some some other people like um, the guy who plays Suge Knight. I think. Does a pretty good Shug Knight impression. Or Marcus Taylor is his name. Uh, ex-stuntman, is that correct? Yeah. He certainly is, looks... Is, yeah. He is menacing for sure and, and big and scary, much like Shug, Shug Knight. Knight. Uh, yeah, uh, we'll get to the, the, the jewel in the crown here in a moment. But before we do... Um, yeah, so effectively, for anyone who doesn't know the backstory of NWA, uh, kind of... You're kind of... It's, it's weird. Like, a lot of these things tend to have a similar thing where people are in different bands or different acts or doing their own thing and then they come together and it turns out working together is the best thing for it. Uh, that's very much the case here. Ice Cube appears to be someone who like was ready to break out. I think he was doing something different with a different crew and then they kind of all come together because like they they were like, let's just form a record label and then it's like, oh, that wasn't working, let's just try it ourselves and when they try it themselves, magic happens and it's very much fo- uh, formed out of you know anti-authority origins being held down and exploding off the back of that. I think the tracks that come out of it are legitimate all-time tracks. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, like, one of the first tracks they do is uh, Dope Man at the show. Um, when we haven't, sorry, we haven't mentioned Paul Giamatti plays Cherry Heller. I've mentioned Jewel in the Crown. <laughs> their manager. Um, so, he brings some A&R reps to see them and they start doing Dope Man and immediately one of the, uh, one old fussy white guy immediately walks out and yeah, you know what he says before he walks out? What? Give me a call if you find the next Bon Jovi. <laughs> and it's your classic, like, <laughs> black rappers, not for me. Uh, but yeah, so but, but uh, Jerry Heller. I guess Paul Giamatti in every sequence in this movie, in every single sequence, is like sweating and shaking. And That's those velour tracksuits he's wearing. Bug-eyed. In LA. Yeah, we were in velour. I was like, is that how Jerry Heller dressed or was that in Giamatti's contract? Um, no, apparently so it was. Also, wig? Has to be. Has to be a wig, right? Yeah. Like Giamatti's got not got that much up top. He's got brilliant white hair and the quiff is 
perfect. Yeah. Like, it's amazing. Good wig work, considering we just talked about a movie with terrible wig work. That's true, yeah. So uh, he comes in. Effectively, like, you get a sequence where he shows up out of thin air. and Yeah, so that's not really well explained. So the where they were pressing their first... Where they were pressing Boys in the Hood um, also had, like, a label there. And, yeah, Giamatti was kind of in on the periphery and just kind of, yeah, appears out of thin air. In real life, I think they found out about him and basically had to pay money to get into a room with him. So um, Jerry Heller was saying that the first time uh, he met Easy, they kind of rolled up and it was like $750 to meet Jerry Heller and to, to get some time with him. And Easy just rolled up and pulled the 750 out of his shoe. He's like, there you go. <laughs> Here's what we got. <laughs> well, what, what they got was it was in that moment where like, effectively they're going to work with someone else and then the lads kind of said, this is right, we're out. And then they worked together, and following a little bit of bumps in the road, we got this. Oh, say that shit like you believe it, man. Like it's your words. Feel that shit. Stop playing around. Loosen the fuck up. There you go. <laughs> Cruising down the street in my 6 foot. Oh, shit. Hey, that was dope, eh? That shit was dope, man. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, man. <laughs> you been feeling that shit, right? Now we only got 59 more lines to punch in. <laughs> but it's all good. We're going to get through it. Let's go on to the next So I was seeing um, a YouTube comment today. YouTube comments are usually terrible, but sometimes they yield good stuff. And someone said that they saw it in a theater, presumably in LA or something, and that like when he puts the shades on, Craig went fucking crazy, and I, I, I'd love to have been there for that. Like I said, be like that'd be incredible. Like you know, for it to have that kind of you know significance and iconography, just that little moment. Because obviously, seeing it in Dublin cinema, no one reacts. You know? No, we're we're also I feel like sometimes and you know too civilized in our in our movie attendance. You only get that in like a, a late night showing in the lighthouse, but yeah, in America, people are going to get up for that. Going all out. I've never been to the cinema across that part of the world or Canada where you spend a lot of time. Canadian audiences are very different, I'd say as well. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Very polite? Pretty polite, yeah. yeah. You never saw any kind of crazy... I did once see a man. I went to see uh, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. And there was a guy there, and he was he was kind of really enjoying it. Uh, a middle-aged white man who should have known better. And there was some joke that clearly 40-Year-Old Virgin innuendo, and he stood up and said, yeah, you know what that's about. Whoa. And then he sat back down, because... <laughs> I Jesus. hope whoever was with him pulled him down immediately. Yikes. Uh did you feel the chemistry in this in this recording? Did it feel authentic to you? I think so. Um like it doesn't it showed um the the influence Dre would have had on Easy and kind of what he brought to the studio as opposed to just Oh, we got this. It's great. I wrote it. Okay, sing it. Oh, wow. We've got a hit record. Like the first delivery that Easy E does is so pathetic. It's so funny. <laughs> and the fact that like everyone immediately just like busts the shit laughing. Then you go back and he kicks everyone out and he does it again. It's still not good. But Dre's like, oh, there is something in there though. There's something in your rhythm there. And he's like, hit that harder. And you can see the build up to it. So it's one of the kind of the rare times in, in these kind of movies that you get some kind of look into the to the production process, I think. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And yeah, so that leads them to Jerry Heller, which leads them to working with Jerry Heller and like basically like working in the studio, etc. And you, you get that sequence where they're outside just taking a break from the studio and up rolls a couple of cops and then another couple of cops and make them lie down in the street and obviously are harassing them. 
Uh, Paul Giamatti comes out and loses his shit. Like, you can tell Giamatti's going for it in this movie. We'll play a clip later on of him losing it, but he starts here. Like, there's just, like, a moment where his voice just breaks and he's, like, really screaming at it. And, yeah, it informs what comes next uh, when Cube goes back into the studio and he's got, like, a, an A4 notebook and then passes around the lyrics of the thing that he's just written. Can you guess what it is, listener? Fuck down. Hands behind your back. Interlock your fingers. Yeah. It's fucked up. Interlock them. Oh, fuck, you got us on the ground like this for officer? For our protection. I, Seven of you and four of us. So sit tight and let us do our job. Hey, officer, I'm sorry. What is going Sir, on out? can you stay right there, please? We're trying to check these bangers, make sure they're clean. All right, I'm sorry. These are not bangers, okay? These, um, these are artists. Excuse me, artists? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. What kind of artists? Rappers. And they're working with me in the studio right now. Well, see, rap is not an art. And I'm sorry, who are you? I'm the manager. Well, you're wasting your time, Mr. Manager. I got something to say. Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it bad because I'm brown. And not the other color, so police think they had the authority to kill a minority. Fuck that shit because I ain't the one for a punk motherfucker with a badge and a gun to be it was of course the wonderful fuck the police what a fucking song it's a monster of a song it's unbelievable <laughs> like it's just incredible and i can't begin to imagine like the music nowadays there's nothing that really seems dangerous while it's it's kind of hard to imagine being you know, in LA around that time when, you know, rap was, you know, Fresh Prince, Jazzy Jeff, like it, it was quite soft. Like you had Public Enemy, they were pushing back in the East Coast, but like something so stark as the statement that just comes out at the start of that song. Um, yeah, it's hard to hard to imagine. Yeah, we played the audio there from the in-movie audio, which is during a concert in Detroit where previously they were warned not to play it because it spiraled and such thing where, like, it's, it's banned, essentially. And, like, it's funny because, I mean, like, it seems now that that is, like, unimaginable. Like, what are you talking about? It's a fucking song. I know he curses. I know it's whatever. But different times. And, I mean, like, I remember even, like, 10 years on from that, uh, there was the story, which I think is true, that, like, Slipknot were banned to play in Ireland by, like, the Parents Council or something. There was, like, a whole thing. I don't know how true that story is because I yeah. can't find anything on it. Well, I mean, you, you, if you want to go even to something more recent, um, Theresa May, when she was Home Secretary, was responsible for not letting Tyler play a show That's in, correct. Uh, yeah, yeah. in England. So there is still that kind of hangs around and, like, you know, you're a Simlaw fan, you're a Marilyn Manson fan. There was obviously the time when, like, he was public enemy number one um, blamed for a school massacre that by people who apparently weren't fans of his at all. Uh, yeah, so like every generation kind of has its boogeyman, I suppose. And this song sent absolute shockwaves throughout America uh, at a time when you know police brutality was obviously a, a huge thing. It obviously still is a huge thing. Hence, the song still has a lot of resonance. The sequence uh, in which we heard it, by the way, uh, we'll get to that in a moment. But before we do. Um, this track, as amazing as it is, has been parodied, of course, and there's one parody that I think is quite brilliant. Uh, Adam Buxton of Adam and Joe fame has a sequence in which he plays like a quote-unquote cool dad in a car with his wife and child, neither of whom are very impressed by his actions, and he starts off by asking his son if he knows what day it is, and the kid's like, Tuesday, 
And then he goes, wrong, it's NWA day. And the wife's like, no, absolutely not, no way. And he's like, oh, it's okay, I've, I've got it under control. So he selectively messes with the volume and uh, substitutes some lyrics. And it sounds a bit like this. Have the police coming straight from the underground. A young chap's got it good because I'm brown. And not the other colour, so police think they have the authority to carry out inquiries. I don't mind because I ain't the one for an excellent policeman with, with a badge and a gun to be reasonably arresting. And so in jail, we can go toe to toe in the middle of a cell. Having lots of fun because I'm a teenager with a little bit of gold and a pager. Searching my car, looking for the biscuits, thinking every chap is selling lots of chocolate. You'd rather see me writing with a pen than me and Lorenzo rolling Yeah, huge fan of that. It's very, very good. It's really, really good. Uh, <laughs> and that, Jasper, is more or less how it is in the hood. So, yeah, we heard the uh, function there, or the, we, heard, we heard the version there, rather, of um, at the uh, at the concert where the cops were in the crowd. Um, first of all, I will say that, unlike Bohemian Rhapsody, and definitely unlike The Dirt as well, the live scenes are really good. They're really, really good. Um, the From, like, the club scenes to the stadiums, they look fantastic. Um the stage production for particularly the Detroit show and where you have the way it was set up where um, two of them are on high rises on either side, Trey in the back. With barbed uh, wire behind them. With like bins on fire in the back. Like it looks <laughs> so good. It and looks it's amazing. Like, Jesus. Because like rap music now is associated with being like a stadium show. But like that has got to be some of the early times where you were playing big, big arenas as a rap artist. And you know, normally the idea of like is just like, oh, there's a there's a DJ in the back with a mixer, there's your rapper, and there might be a hype man. But like, quite like pretty solid production, and like felt very, very, very true to the band. Yeah, they also looked fucking cool as well. He yeah. was just wearing like caps and Raiders jackets. It looked amazing. Uh, seeing this in the cinema, like this sounded amazing. Like it sounded brilliant. I was like, this is fucking. I wish I could listen to music like this all the time. It's amazing. Like it was so big and booming and brilliant. Uh, how accurate was that gig? Um, I it there was there was a riot. Um, there was like a push towards the front. Uh, there was a, a sound of like gunshots in the in the movie. In real life, it apparently was some like some firecrackers. People rushed the front, and they weren't arrested afterwards. They were just talked to in it in a back room. Or they get into like a brawl. With the yeah, yeah. And you have like, um, fans who were like suddenly outside the venue. There's like a bridge overhead where they can throw debris down at the cops. flaming debris, <laughs> flaming <Yeah>. debris. <laughs> maybe they raided the stage. Yeah. It was like, yeah, so <laughs> just thrown to you for one second. You're like, huh? Okay. So yeah, very dramatic, but very cool like, like in terms of just like its presentation. Like this is the first hour of the movie and it genuinely moves at a clip. And it's 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 always interesting to watch, which unfortunately does not carry through the whole thing. Um, I guess at this point, I mean, like uh, the film's treatment of women um, is probably worth raising. Yeah. So it's it's not as it's not as uh, it's not as bad as Motley Crue, but there's an argument to be made that their treatment was just as bad. Um, you have, as you mentioned earlier, you have that one scene um, where a guy comes looking for his girlfriend, Felicia. and <laughs> That scene is awful. Yeah. Like, what do you think of the, 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 the pay... The, the payoff. The payoff. I mean... The, like the little nod to Friday. I thought it was dumb, you know? So, okay, the sequence is uh, there's a hotel room in which NWA are having a sexy party with lots of women and everyone's having a good time. Uh, and then some lads are outside looking for uh, one of their girlfriends, whose name is Felicia. She's in there somewhere. 
she eventually gets thrown out or someone does and you get like O'Shea Jackson Jr. Of all people to do it, man. My, my lovely, beloved O'Shea Jackson Jr. Like fucking puts his hand on like the back of her head and like pushes her out the door and says, bye Felicia. And it's like, okay, there you go. And he ad-libbed it as well. Did he? He did. And it stayed in. <laughs> it stayed in. Oh, O'Shea. There's also in that sequence, like Easy E pulls out a fucking like MP5 or like some kind of like <laughs> yeah. Navy SEAL machine gun with a silencer on it and it scares the guys away. And you're like, huh? The trailer for this movie as well has like a bit where it shows them taking out like shotguns and, and machine guns, which obviously never really leads to anything. And I think in the trailer you have, the, you have like a line from Paul Giamatti where it's like, you can't take that on the bus, which isn't in the movie. It feels like it, it, feels like it was trying to sell you something slightly different. For a band that were uh, heavily they're monitored by the FBI. They're on the road. How are they, how, where are they getting military machine guns? Like, what? I'm assuming they brought them with them. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> so that sequence was just to show you the level of debauchery, which, unlike the dirt, it only spends a couple minutes doing so. Uh, definitely a sequence that wasn't terribly enjoyable. I mean, like, a big thing about the treatment of women as well is that, like, there's a certain uh, history om- omitted in this. A major one. So, um particularly when it comes to Dr. Dre, has a history of violence against women. Uh, uh, Michelle A., who was a label mate that did some recording. He was going out with Dre for a while. He hit her a lot. And there's a very famous um, incident with Dee Barnes, who was a, was a presenter on MTV on... Um, what was it called? I think MTV Jump Up. Sorry. <laughs> Lost it there for a second, but anyway, um, she did an interview kind of post the the breakup um, between Cube and NWA, where they kind of played some footage of some things that NWA would say about Cube. He said some stuff back, and he kind of shot back at it, and then when this got back to Dre, there was an incident where he basically, he beat her pretty badly, and apparently like threw her down a flight of stairs. Um, He since has kind of given one of those non-apologies apologies where he said, oh, I've, you know, I've moved on. Um, I believe we have a clip of it. Yeah, it comes up in the Defiant ones. Let's take a listen. I've experienced abuse. I've um, watched my mother get abused, you know? So it's like there's absolutely no excuse for it. No woman should ever be treated that way. Any man that puts his hands on a female is a fucking idiot. He's out of his fucking mind. And I was out of my fucking mind at the time. I fucked up. I paid for it. I'm sorry for it. And I apologize for it. I have this dark cloud that follows me. And it's going to be attached to me forever. It's a major blemish on who I am as a man. And every time it comes... So good enough? The apology? Yeah. Absolutely not. No. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so th- this is the big thing on this film. Um, you know, they they address you know their their kind of violence, their their vulgarity a bit, but their their behavior towards women is really bad. Particularly Dee Barnes, like there's no no woman in this has a voice. Um, there's characters of like their their wives who are portrayed like quite well, but kind of just doting, don't really have a lot to say, kind of just in the background. Um, yeah, it's it's not great. Um, it's no surprise, though, as well, that, like, you know, with Dre on production duties, that that would be next. Yeah, it's under... Well, it's not... You kind of understand why they didn't do it, but um, it doesn't really make it right. So, 
Uh, Dee Barnes wrote a piece for Gawker after this came out, so she went to see it. Um, I'll read a bit from you, considering she has no voice in this movie. Um, My life changed that night. I suffer from horrific migraines that started only after the attack. I love Dre's song, Keep Their Heads Ringing. It has a particular deep meaning to me. When I get migraines, my head does ring and it hurts, exactly in the same spot every time where he smashed my head against the wall. People have accused me of holding on to the past. I'm not holding on to the past. I have a souvenir that I never wanted. The past holds on to me. Fuck. Yeah. Um, yeah, she kind of goes on to say, like, apart from that incident not being there, there was actually some um, some artists on Ruthless that were, like, very, very influential at the time. Um, they're not mentioned at all. It's, yeah, they... They, it, this is this movie is so focused on the three of them that it just has no time for anyone else. Yeah, it's very selective, and I guess they are the stars, and that's what you're going to get. I think a lot of people who go to see this movie though are looking for you know just a, a, like a, not so much a tribute, but like you're looking to be entertained. Like this is a popcorn movie in a way. Yeah, I'll give you just one more piece from D. Barnes, who said, with the exception of short scenes with mother figures and wives, the rest of the women in the film were naked in a hotel room or dancing in the background at the wild pool parties. Yo-Yo, a female rapper who worked with Ice Cube after he left NWA, was nowhere to be found. Nor are women who worked with Dre later in his career, like Jewel and the Lady of Rage. They both contributed tremendously to the ultimate sound of the classic album The Chronic. What about rootless R&B singer-songwriter Michelle A, who at the young age of 17 was singing vocals on world-class wrecking crew Turn Off the Lights? Michelle A and Dre developed a personal and professional association, and he went on to produce her two best-known hits. Both songs reflected their volatile relationship. Then there is the rootless Compton Town solo female artist Easy's protege, Terry B, the first white female hardcore rapper, a bold blonde at the time who wasn't afraid to speak her mind. Terry B released an album named The Power of a Woman and dropped singles like Murder, She Wrote and Rootless Bitch. So there was lots of people in their orbit at the time, but there's no time for it. There's no time really for um, the DOC either, who is sometimes kind of called the fifth Beatle of the NWA. He wrote so much stuff for them um he he is mentioned in the movie and they they have a, a moment where they talk about his his accident but basically cube wrote all the lyrics for easy e but they kind of knew that they needed to have something like slightly more commercial and they were like well cube can't do that because i think doc was like cubes the lyrics are like i'm gonna cut your throat and throw you in a dumpster <laughs> so doc did a lot of writing for them uh when uh, Cube left. He was basically like writing all their lyrics, and there's like there's not really any any mention of him. Um, he tragically lost his basically ability to speak. He not unlike um, Nicky, sorry, like Vince Neil, under the influence, uh, was in a car crash, and um, really, really wrecked himself up. He was off his head at the time, and when he was brought to the ambulance and they tried to intubate him he was trashing around so much that it just completely like shredded his vocal cords Jesus Christ so again none of this in the film that's weird I mean yeah because the film is very very concerned with presenting them in a certain light uh, one of which comes after the Detroit situation um, when people are kind of questioning them there's a press conference scene in which journalists are being like you're so volatile which follows a bunch of news reports which are I think were archive news reports like you get like Tom Brokaw being like rap Dan, Dan rather <laughs> you, take, you get like rap is the new game in town for a lot of teenagers out there who are looking to escape reality but is it good for us I don't know like it's that kind of stuff but then you get this press conference in which uh, I thought once again my boy O'Shea is really good in let's take a listen 
Y'all just got a snapshot of how Americans really feel. We gave the people a voice. We gave the people truth. Yeah, but your songs, they glamorize the lifestyle of gangs, guns, drugs. Our art is a reflection of our reality. What you see when you go outside your door? I know what I see. And it ain't glamorous. You get AKs from Russia and cocaine from Colombia. You got these scenes in movies. There's one in Rush, uh, a film that I've mentioned before that I quite like, the Ron Howard movie. The press conference scene? Yeah. There's which, one in Bohemian Rhapsody as well. There is one in Rush. Yeah, like it's, it's like a big deal. The one in Rush, though, I'm pretty sure like there's a moment where like uh, Chris Hemsworth's character like beats up a journalist for insulting Nicky Lauda, which never happened. Yeah. Uh, the Bohemian Rhapsody scene, uh, like uh, which, which I'm positive starts off with that aviator bullshit shot that you called yeah. out in the first episode um these scenes exist largely to be kind of platformy and kind of play like where you can throw something out of the character and they can throw it right back at you it's very like it, it, it you're literally scripting an interview situation with a journalist in which you can kind of mold it and shape it but i did think it was at least delivered effectively we're still in the the good half of the movie in terms of presentation in terms of F. Gary Gray actually showing you a bit of scope I thought so I thought that was kind of worth uh, worth throwing in there so you mentioned Cube leaving a couple of times what happened? Um, so this is kind of where it, it kind of stories vary but uh, Cube wasn't happy with the contract situation throughout the movie there's like a constant uh, all the members are asking where's the contracts Jerry? Oh, they're getting finalized. When, and when are they coming the contracts? Um, <laughs> and eventually Jerry Heller produces a contract to Cube but is like sign this right now and he's like but I don't have legal representation I don't know what any of this means um, so the kind of the insinuation that Jerry Heller was kind of taking these guys for a bit of a ride so Cube leaves uh, he goes on to start a very successful solo career um, brings out America's Most Wanted teams up with the Bomb Squad who did all the production for Public Enemy and he's kind of he's he's removed from the kind of movie from like their their main trajectory for a little while yeah and it's interesting because as well like I mean he goes from he loses like you know the kind of the long hair oh he, when he joins Nation of Islam and he shaves the jerry curl yeah yeah, uh, yeah and you get like he starts to look more and more like his dad now because yeah. obviously Ice Cube has been rocking like a short haircut for like the last 20 fucking years or whatever uh, and there that's when you're kind of like Jesus, this guy looks identical to his dad. Like it's, it's, it's fucking uncanny. Like genetics, <laughs> it's unbelievable though. <laughs> um, so yeah, all this leads to some feuding between the you know the former friends who are no longer buddies. Yeah, they have a they have like a little. There's a scene where they're at a convention. <laughs> it kind of it looks like they're in some convention. Yeah, center. it's weird. It's not at, like a yeah. rap convention, which is <laughs> apparently a thing in the early nineties. And they kind of go with each other. Cube's got his new. New crew, the Lynch Mob, uh, NWA there. Yeah, so like it's kind of like very, very... WWE. WWE, yeah. However, it leads to, as it led to, one of the greatest diss tracks I've ever heard. It's a wildly problematic song. It is, but it's an utter banger. It's incredible. And the film recognizes how incredible it is by effectively stopping the movie for three minutes just to play most of it. It shows you in the recording booth. It shows NWA hearing it for the first time in kind of a strange scene. It is, of course, no Vaseline. Fuck all y'all. Goddamn, I'm glad y'all set it off. Used to be hard, now you're just wet and soft. Bert, you was down with the AK. And now I see you on a video with Michelet looking like straight bozos. I saw it coming, that's why I went solo. And kept on stomping. When y'all motherfuckers move straight out of camping. Living with the whites. 
I mean, it's just it's 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 unstoppable. <laughs> it's fantastic. So apparently, he wrote it in ninety minutes. So he he heard. Um, so there's a scene earlier where he's he's at Priority Records with his his rep, and he's like, "Oh, I want you to hear this from me first. And he plays um, something off a hundred miles and running where uh, Cube gets dissed. But apparently, in real life, he like he heard that and he was like, "All right." I've got some notes. <laughs> Went into the studio, banged it out in 90 minutes, and it's insanely good. It's such a good scene. As you said, like, this is basically just, like, clearing the lane of everything just to, like, just dwell and let this song wash over you because it's so good. Um, and the reactions, it's it's amazing because you get the reaction. So um, the rest of the group are listening to it with Jerry Heller, and, like, some of them are just, like, kind of got us there like good one and then like Heller is like <laughs> oh he freaks out like we have to play this like this is Giamatti like eating the scenery motherfucker got us yo what we about to do first thing we're gonna do we're gonna sue this ignorant fuck that's what we're gonna do I don't you know defamation of character libel I don't really care the anti-semitic piece of fucking shit who the fuck does he think he is unfucking believable that kind of fucking bullshit Jew bashing bullshit you know what? I'll call my friends at the JDL. Uh, they'll handle him. We'll see how much he likes that. Yeah, you gotta relax. All right? Niggas don't even know what anti-Semitic means anyway. It's just a fucking battle rap. Come on, Eric. We gotta get organized. We gotta fight this kind of ignorant fucking bullshit. You know what? I always knew that he was a hateful human being. This is just ignorant <sighs> shit. He calls it political? This is ignorant shit. I always knew it. Now- like, fair play to him. Like, I, I, I bought it. Like, pure, wonderful outrage. It's a weird scene, though, because you have a thing where, like, He's playing this off a stereo system in, like, some gaff. And there's a couple of hangers on there, a couple of, of course, unnamed women. And they're, like, giggling away. But you're like, is this really the environment in which you'd play this track? Surely you'd be like, lads, I heard the song. You're not going to like it. Let's go into a private room. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> not like, everybody come over. I've just got some nice canapes. We're going to have a listening party to no Vaseline. <laughs> I've got this sick new hi-fi system. Uh, yeah, and yet, like, Q's boys kind of, like, you know, in the studio being like, oh, my God, this is amazing. <laughs> it's, it's an incredible fucking song. Like, of course, there are elements to it, like, that are just obviously horribly wrong. Yeah, like, I mean, know, he the, got... It's homophobic. Right, yeah, it's right homophobic. It's anti-Semitic. Um, Jerry Heller gave an interview. He died recently, but um, around the time that the movie came out, he gave an interview, and he still is really, really hurt by that song. He called it one of the most vitriolic attacks on the Jewish people that I've ever seen. Which is like, you know, pretty bloody strong words. Yeah, I mean, like, not to jump too far ahead, but, like, Jerry Heller, as you mentioned, did pass away. And, like, apparently this film really fucked him up. Uh, His, like, kind of... Whoever was speaking on his behalf effectively said that this movie killed him. Like, in his, like he died of a heart attack, I believe. Yeah. Um, he, he was in his mid-70s when this came out. Yeah, he sued the production um, and effectively said that he was completely misrepresented. And I think he had a heart attack possibly while driving or something and obviously died. And his manager, whoever it was, uh, said like this, he died of a broken heart. This film killed him. And I was like, Jesus. I find that interesting because I don't think they go in that hard on him. No. Um, like he's dead. And I don't. He, I think he, he a lot is. of it is to do with how good Giamatti is and how um, compelling he is, how paternal he is. Particularly his scenes with Easy E are great. Like that scene that we mentioned outside the studio on Torrance uh, before they record "Fuck the Police." Like he's again, like he's he's hamming it up in that scene, but he genuinely looks like heartbroken at what is happening to people that he cares about and the fact that he's essentially powerless to do anything about it, and also the guilt of 
nothing is happening to him. He can literally spew anything he wants into the cop's face and there are no repercussions. He's like he's phenomenal in this. So like yeah, it's it's it it, yeah, was, it was put to Cube and like Dre when, around the time like when he shows up, you thought you, you'd go harder on him. Yeah, when he shows up, you do think cartoon character. Yeah, but he's not, not at all. Like, don't get me wrong, Jumanji eats some ham, but like ultimately the film is better for it. But no, yeah, like I think he is ultimately a three dimensional character. Um, and you get sequences where he's being intimidated by Suge Knight's crew, and you feel for him. You're like, okay, this guy may be screwing the guys around, and ultimately it's kind of effectively stated that he was. To some degree, but at no point was I like, oh, this guy's like a, a clear villain. This guy's like, you know, like evil. Like, it's just more like, might be some shady business practices going on here. Yeah, he still maintains that nothing, everything was above board. Um, in the interview, he said, uh, for those who still see him as evil, Heller explains, I only say three words to them, read my book. When they do, that changes everything. I answer every single inquiry on Facebook and everybody that writes to me, I send them a copy of the book. I buy 2,000 at a time and send them all a copy autographed and every single word in there is the truth. Every single word. Okay, first of all, it's more than three words. Yeah. Second of all, what you're telling me here... That's a tall tale. Yeah, you're telling me here if Jerry Heller was still alive, I could get a free book. Yeah, just hit him up on Facebook. Oh, man. Or maybe on Twitter now, but... If the estate is He does seem like a man who likes to likes to play with the truth a little there's a there's a great <laughs> there's a great bit in the interview where he said that in the most Kirby enthusiasm um situation i've ever heard he had a falling out with marvin gay because he refused to lend him his sunglasses <laughs> which is incredible <laughs> um okay so uh, we've mentioned suge knight you've written the word suge knight down here in block capitals do you have something to say about this man that hasn't already been said <laughs> What can you say? What can you say? Um, his representation in this is so cartoonish. <laughs> it's beyond... Like, he might as well have CGI devil horns. Like, every scene he's wearing, like... Red jumpsuits. Blood red. And yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah we get it. <laughs> Associated <laughs> with the bloods. But, like, even, like, his, like, his dogs that he has around. And it's like, he might as well have the two snarling dogs on, like, a throne either side of him. There's a bit where uh, some guy's in this parking space... And he pistol whips him in front of Dre, who's like, maybe this wasn't such a great team up. Yeah. Um, there's a scene where he, he tries to get um, Dre out of his ruthless contract and get him onto death row. And so basically he brings uh, E over on the auspice of like, hey, you know, we'll we'll chat things out. We'll, we'll see what we can do. E shows up. He thinks Dre will be there. And it's just Shug and two dudes with baseball bats. And he has a line where he says, don't make me change you. And that is such a terrifying threat because there's so much it could mean. It's just yeah, like, yeah. I think he's really good in this. And for like the fact that he's a stunt man, he's great to, in this. To, he like he really really stands out. Like he did, he does have a lot to like aside from like the main three like this and and Heller. He's kind of getting the most to play with, and like he is cartoon character, so there's a lot there. Real life conspiracy theory corner. I don't know the validity of any of this, but like some people have speculated that he somehow. Oz fucking TV prison show style gave Easy E HIV. Oh wow! Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen people. I've seen people speculate like, uh, that the Adebisi. Precisely. I mean, like you know, it's a crazy theory, but we've all seen Oz. We all have. Well, maybe we have. <laughs> That's a show I thought was amazing when I was younger, and now I feel like you know I don't think I could back and watch it because I could never watch it again. It's so nasty. Like yeah. it's maybe the nastiest TV show of all time. Absolutely. Um. So Shug is currently in jail for uh, voluntary manslaughter, serving 28 years. 
kind of linked to this movie because uh, the incident where he took the life of uh, Terry Carter, who was um, kind of head of heavyweight records along with Cube, there was like a dispute on the set and it kind of it moved away from the set and he ended up running over two guys in his car. Um, he also apparently was threatening F. Gary Gray after the movie came out. F. Gary Gray was getting death threats. So that charge was dropped um, as part of his plea for the voluntary manslaughter. But a genuinely, genuinely terrifying man. He really is, yeah. And if you're listening... I hope he never hears this podcast. (laughs) If you're listening... (laughs) Let's just let's just not. Um, so the film then moves into the territory where I feel like it loses a lot of steam. The second act of this film is really, really boring. I mean, they just deal a lot with business stuff and contract issues and disputes. And the film begins to take on a very flat look and tone to it. It just drags. And it's such a contrast to the opening hour. Like, because it's a two and a half hour movie, like, you know, and like that second era, man. The, the aesthetics are like they do. They change. They become a music video like... Um, this movie was shot by Matthew Levitek, who's Darren Aronofsky's guy. Whatever you think about Darren Aronofsky movies, they tend to look pretty good. Did he do Mother? He did Mother. I mean, that looks amazing. Like, he whatever. did A Star Is Born, which looks really, really good. He did Venom, a favorite of yours. Excellent, yeah. <laughs> looks brilliant. So, like, as you can see from like the start, the start of the film, it looks really, really good. That like yellow haze kind of over the early scenes. Um, he does really oppressive stuff with like red and blue kind of signaling the cop cars. But yeah, second half of the movie, it's like there's there's a scene in this film where it's like coming up out of the water and following a woman's ass. It's like it's so bland. It's so uninteresting. Yeah, and like the content, there's just not much happening. I mean, it's just kind of like your standard. Everyone went in their own separate directions. Everyone was kind of infighting. The music suffered, of course. The group effectively disbanded after a couple of records, which they did. And, you know, they finally looks like they might make amends towards the end of it. Like, am I actually, like, like legitimately, am I leaving anything out here in terms of the narrative arc? Because No, it- there's there's lots of stuff happening in the background. So, like, it kind of borderlines on just, there's cameos or what do you want to call them, Easter eggs or something. Yeah. Like, leaning how over you- me like, hey, look, that's Tupac or, you know. How do you feel about this? Because you get, like... You get Jimmy Iovine coming in like, hey, I'm from Interscope. I think you're cool. And I'm it's like, Jimmy Iovine. And then he's gone. That's that scene. And you're like, okay... You get a two-pack scene very briefly. Um, you get a good Lakeith Stanfield as Snoop Dogg. He is He's really good in it. as Snoop Dogg. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Like um, <laughs> it do, I do have to ding it for having that, like, you know, um, creating music seemingly out of nowhere, where nothing, nothing but a G yeah. thing, where it's just like, oh, maybe, maybe do that for a second. And then it's just like, they're song is created yeah, there's the rhyme they're in like a, they're in a mansion like in Dre's story he's like I just can't get it and then all of a sudden starts playing it and then Snoop's like I've got something I'll, get, I'll give it a go and then it's like oh there's gin and juice yeah like, okay. um, it does it does kind of feel like they're just like hitting all the bullet points so it's like oh then Corner came out um, but do you not feel like uh, Rodney the, King was happening? That's a kind of the a, Rodney a, King thing. They try, like they, they hit it a couple of times. They like try they and make it come a big back to deal, it, yeah. and then they they have an LA riot scene. But it's like it's just like this happened. There's, yeah. there's nothing. There's nothing about the band and the, like what they would have meant or, or what their not their stance, but like were people looking to them for a message because they seemingly were before. It's just like. This happened. Um, can it's we move along? Ticking, yeah. yeah, but I feel again like if you're going to make this movie, I think the audience, the general audience, because again, this is like a big studio movie, want those boxes. They want to see, you know, like 
a young Tupac, a young Snoop Dogg, whatever. And you know, Ellie Riots, you got to mention it. But like, so what do you think in terms of this movie? Like, and like, does it capture the cultural impact of NWA? Um, I don't, I don't fully know. I, ne- I never, I never got the full um, impression of how dangerous that they were perceived. There, there's the there's the fuck the police scene in Detroit, but apart from that, they never they never seemed like yeah they never seemed dangerous and they never seemed like how much of in the monoculture they were where they were just like these massive massive stars like particularly like when the Chronic came out like Cube's success I never really got the full idea of their success outside of like we had kind of uh, you know big pool parties. Like that's kind of the the idea of the success that they had, um, where they were in the culture in the latter half. It's kind of an unknown. Yeah, and then it swings into you know kind of serious dramatic movie territory at the end. So you get like a moment where Easy E goes to meet Ice Cube at a club, and Ice Cube's being very resistant. He's got an entourage with him, and they're kind of blocking Easy E out. And then eventually they sit down, they break bread together, and they laugh and they smile. And I really enjoy that because the two lads just have really really good chemistry. They're both really really likable. You know, like they're just fucking. Like I bought them as friends, um, and then there's talk of getting the band back together. Uh, they're gonna do it. It's gonna happen. Easy gets sick, goes to hospital, and this happens. She's pregnant, Doc. What does this mean? It doesn't necessarily mean that she's contracted the virus, but uh, we have to test her to be sure. So what do we do? We we start the treatment. I mean, what? I gotta get healthy. I got things to do. I got. What are we supposed to do? Mr. Wright, you need to understand that you are very, very sick. I don't even feel that bad, Doc. Don't tell me that. With care and palliative care, we can probably keep you comfortable for um, maybe six months at the very most. Comfortable? What do you mean, comfortable? Which, I mean, you know, we're in movie of the week territory here, but, like, it's fucking tough. <laughs> like, it really, really is. Um, and it's not something I, w- I expected from a movie like this that is so, you know, there's so much braggadocia, there's so much, you know, puffed up chest machismo. For it to go there, it really, really, really works. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really affecting inside. And, like, it's that thing of, like, this might sound like a dumb thing to say, but, like, I really bought that that actor did not want to die. There was just something really childlike and awful and so fucking heartbreaking about it that you're just like, Jesus Christ. Like, I mean, this film's kind of lost me in the last little bit, but like, oh God. But then the problem is that like, you know, you spend very little time on this. He's gone like five minutes. The film's over. In, like, oh yeah, minutes. it's kind of like, oh, you will have six months. And then I think when he got it, he died really quickly. I believe uh, so. After yeah. he actually found like out. Like a month possibly? Yeah, even maybe within that. Um, yeah so like the you know everyone kind of makes amends everyone ends on a high note apart from obviously a horrible death but the the choice of ending this movie is kind of strange to me where like Dre gets out of his contract with Suge Knight and then like you know effectively goes yeah yeah keep whatever you got and Suge Knight's like you're, you're fucking in your walk away from all this money and he's like no I've got my own thing now and then Suge Knight's like what's it called and Dre like, turns around and goes it's the aftermath aftermath <laughs> and you're like credits and i'm like is aftermath that like it's like you're teasing the joker in like at the end of batman begins like, yeah what? like what was that 
there there was kind of like talk originally when post it being so successful it's just like oh do, are they just going to do like you know dog pound and um go into that and it's like you know it's not that interesting i kind of feel like again like it's one of those box ticking things that this thing this goes through where it's just like we just have to we have to name check everything like even before um they start ruthless records in, in like the very first scene someone's like damn easy why you got to be so ruthless and it's just like <laughs> someone having to think about it yeah, so, you know, smash cut to credits, and then you get the, you know, some real life footage. You get, like, uh, a shot of Dr. Dre in his Apple Cupertino studios that he hangs out in now, I suppose. His success off the back of beats. You get Kendrick Lamar saying how much of a big deal NWA meant to him, and just kind of shots of the time. And again, you're closing on, like, some great music, so, like, you do leave the cinema being, like, a bit, a bit pumped up. But overall, I mean, like, I just feel like it, it veers into a TV movie halfway through. Uh, it it doesn't necessarily like take away f- from the first hour in as much as like I really like that first hour and I found myself like rewatching this being like fuck I'm gonna be coming in here being like you know what this is actually one of the really better ones it could have been yeah it could have been um, it was pretty close for a time yeah it it kind of has it but I guess it's one of those things is where like the struggle is probably always the more interesting thing it, it and it kind of I guess uh, the the early half of it kind of really deals with the police brutality at the time and it does it quite well while the latter half is just like that's all just cast aside and as you said it's just like signing contracts and you know my lawyer I'll talk to your lawyer yeah which is just not exciting which, which kind of like isn't rap music it's kind of you know I don't know rap music's not in the boardroom <laughs> so yeah for me the villain in this movie is not Jerry Heller it's F. Gary Gray uh, a director I would say with a limited vision and once again your commitment to the show is just it's, it's a wonderful thing you sat down and watched a few F. Gary Gray movies so take us through I month, did I, I only ended up watching I watched two I hadn't seen so I, wa- I did watch A Man Apart okay let's go in like in sequential order okay here. so Friday do you like Friday I remember liking it when I was younger. I haven't revisited it. I yeah, I didn't get a chance to rewatch it. I really, really liked it when I was younger. I'm probably going to say that it's still pretty good. I'm sure there's some jokes in it that are yeah, not going to fly how today. Do you, how do you feel about Ice Cube like as an entertainer and an actor, etc.? Because I mean, obviously, like you know, like the Ice Cube that like starts off in this movie versus the Ice Cube he is now. You know, making family movies. He's a businessman. Whatever. I mean, ultimately, you know, dude provided a life for his kids he's yeah. to do whatever he wants uh capable of really good stuff though obviously has char- obviously has a lot of charisma i really like the movie trespass back in the day bill paxton william sadler ice cube ice tea it's a good good thriller you know good very early 90s vhs thriller he can be really good when he wants to be i think he just generally does a lot of show yeah um he seems to do like kind of family comedies and triple x2 i mean i guess one of the one of the movies that or the movies that he is known for now are the Jump Street movies, where I think he's really good because they're essentially just using the character of Ice Cube to get the jokes. And he's great deadpan in it. He's very good at being angry. He kind of has a Seraphus face all the time. Am I right in saying he was on like the Late Late Show a few years ago? Um, yeah, that doesn't... I think he was. Yeah, I kind of feel like because either... Yeah, there must have been because he was, he was around he, the Kevin Hart films. He was like right along. I feel like they're like paramount and they had like a real push where like kevin hart was always coming to ireland so yeah i, I can i, I seem can to remember, see I seem to something remember in some, my head of him doing something i remember some awkward thing with him like being presented with an irish jersey or something or other he was presented with a hurley with a hash symbol on it when the rubber bandits supported him oh yeah <laughs> back in like that, yeah. a tripod many years ago that was a thing so yeah 
Friday, F. Gary Gray, people like it, cult classic, I suppose, for a lot of people. Yeah, I'd say it's probably going to be his best film. Ooh, okay, keep going. Um, next he goes and he makes Set It Off, um, which is a, a heist film starring Vivica Fox, um, Queen Latifah, and Jada Pinkett, and John C. McGinley. Um, yeah, it's actually, I watched it last night, it's, it's a pretty decent one. Like, it's very, very, very B-movie, but... Um, it's a movie that is just like they just would not make this anymore. It's kind of like it's an R-rated film. It's like it's pretty violent. Um, the relationship between um all the four women is really good. They like there's a genuine like caring about them. It's kind of uh, they're just like trying to get out of their situation. Like there's some well staged scenes in it. It's got a pretty good soundtrack. It's got that on Vogue song. Don't, don't let go. go. Don't yeah. Let go. What is it? Uh, don't, don't let go. Don't let go. Yeah. Which in the movie, well, because I'd never seen it before, and like my. I'm, I was well aware of the movie growing up because that was like a real staple of MTV that back in the day, and its uh, its soundtracks are really, really terrible. Sex scene in this film, <laughs> but overall, like it's it's pretty good. What I hadn't actually realized about uh, F. Gary Gray is how young he is. He's only forty nine. So when he made Friday, he was like twenty four. Yeah. Next year he makes um, Set It Off, and then like. 28 years old makes The Negotiator which is which is a big film for you we'll get to that in just a second but hang on two more things and set it off number one you say they wouldn't make it now but like when Widows came out recently a lot of people were kind of pointing to set it off saying like this has been the forgotten kind of like yeah I mean I guess that's a that's a, a fair comparison um, this is far more genre like I like Widows got made because Steve McQueen kind of had the cachet to make it because he's an Oscar nominated director. And I also think you take in Gillian Flynn, who has, you know, massive cash with um, Gone Girl. While this is like someone making their second film. Yeah, yeah, it's DIY. Um, yeah. Did you so like, Dre was in it? Dre has a, a small role as an RMC theater in it. Um, and like the script in this was like written by someone who wrote Glitter. So like it's it's not <laughs> the best material. And like it did, I think it did a tidy. Don't tidy. forget, Trey also has a small role in Training Day. Training Day, as one of Denzel's crew. Uh, so the Negotiator, yeah. I mean, you say big film for me. I don't know. I mean, like this was a well. Big... When I mentioned the Negotiator, <laughs> the fact that you're just you're able to like rail off. I've seen a, a couple, quote yeah. from the movie to me. Well, I mean, like uh, it seems to be a thing that you have with Michael Pope. <laughs> yeah, after mentioning Michael Pope, we have this running gag where, like, uh, so essentially, this movie is Samuel L. Jackson plays a character called Danny Roman. He's a top negotiator, and something goes down. His partner gets killed. He gets framed for it. He takes people hostage, including Paul Giamatti and the late J. T. Walsh. And essentially, they're like, you know come on give yourself up Danny but he swears that there's a bigger conspiracy afoot and he's innocent so to combat this uh, they bring in and I love this the city's other top hostage negotiator why, from the other side of the city why, why do you need two what the fuck big city a guy called Chris Sabian played by problematic Kevin Spacey problematic Kevin Spacey uh, so his name, like I say his name is Chris Sabian Sabian being a brand of uh, symbol uh, which you know in my drumming days I would have bought uh, Samuel L you know always has his big moments in these movies and after some, after being fucked around with by his colleagues, who now think he's a criminal, uh, he tells them he's had enough, and he, he he gives them a simple demand. And the demand, which is the quote that Mick and I throw at each other randomly every now and then, is, Get me 
Sabian! <laughs> I don't know why it's funny. I don't know why it's funny, but it's just funny when uh, Samuel Jackson overacts. Uh, this film is two hours and 20 minutes long and has no business being... It's like this is a 100-minute <laughs> film just stretched to its very limit. <laughs> it's it's fucking stacked cast, though. Yeah. Uh, you got Tom Sizemore. No, sorry, not Tom Sizemore. David Morris. I always mix Morse and Sizemore Do for you? some reason. David Morris, John Problematic Spell. Tom Sizemore. Because yeah. when I first was going to rewatch it, I was like, does this have two people? I was like, that's almost like you can't watch it. Oh, them. that's like when I like writing for Joe and like it's here are the movies on TV today and The Usual Suspects comes up. And I'm like, this film is going to have to be cancelled soon. If one more guy <laughs> from that uh, film. So essentially, yeah, you got like uh, Samuel Jackson, Kevin Spacey, John Spencer of the West Wing fame, uh, Ron Rifkin of LA Confidential fame, David Morse, Paul Giamatti, J.T. Walsh. There's definitely others. There's definitely others. Yeah, I feel like there's a small role yeah. somewhere in there. It's, it's a classic late 90s uh, VHS thriller. And yeah, way too long. But, you know, enjoyable. Yeah, it's it's like it's like it's pretty good. Like the two, Spacey and Samuel, are really, really good in it. So they kind of propel the whole thing forward. Yeah. Okay, what else F. Gary Gray got? Um, then he went on and made The Italian Job, which I have not seen. I've seen it. And your thoughts? It's very generic. Yeah. It's, kind of, it's again, like, good cast. It's like Statham, Edward Norton, Charlie Theron, Norton was Wahlberg. In, Norton was in as a contractual obligation to the studio. He did no press for the film. He didn't want to be in it. And he was very vocal about not wanting to be in it, but he literally had to do it. Donald Sutherland's in it as well. Uh, Seth Green, I believe. Oh, God. A guy called Frankie G, who was in Saw 2 and other films. They're trying to make him happen for a while. It's precisely what you think of 2003 action movie would be it's just so in the middle it hurts but uh, yeah Statham plays a character called Handsome Rob very good he's handsome I mean yeah there you no go. no argument with that uh, 2003 he also brought out A Man Apart a Vin Diesel film yeah talk to me about this one would you Um. so uh, written and directed sorry written by Christian Gudegast and Paul Schuring who went on to be the team behind Den, Den of, of Thieves. Thieves and like they seem to have done Almost nothing since. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> it was just like, there was a man apart in their life, and then they were clearly eating off those checks for a while, and then they make Den of Thieves. For 13 um, years, whatever it is, yeah. Yeah, um, a man apart was terrible. It's not a good movie. Um, like, Finn Diesel gives it his all, but like, oh, just so generic. Again, like, criminal, criminally long. Um, <laughs> kind of goes nowhere. Starts off almost very prescient, where it's just, it's like, there's a wall, or sorry, like all these drugs are flooding into America and there's only like a 15 foot high fence to keep them out. And it's like, oh, interesting. And then, yeah, you're just your bog standard revenge. It's got our boy. Big Tim Oliphant. Hollywood Jack. Yeah. Again, like he's he's fine. He doesn't really have too much scenes. He's fun. Which is a shame because like you think he's going to be the villain, but he's like the sub villain. Yeah. And he gets taken he out. He gets by, got. He gets got by the main villain. Uh, but Tim the Elephant's always worth watching. Have you seen that Netflix show he's in? Um, Santa Clarita, Santa Clarita Diet? I have yeah. not. It's totally fine. It's I, I go as far as to say that it's not great. However, he is a joy. He's broad comedy all the way. No surprises there. Yeah, he loves it. So after that, he goes on to make the sequel that everyone was asking for to uh, get Shorty. The movie Be Cool. Christ. Yeah, I can't remember a lot about this film. I did see it when it came back out back in the day. I think that the the thing that it was sold on is that John Travolta and Uma Thurman are dancing in this movie ten years on from Pulp Fiction. They do the fucking dance. The Rock 
is kind of comes out well from it. I think. He does, yeah. A lot, he got a lot of positive notices. Basically, for anyone who doesn't know, Be Cool, you know, it takes Get Shorty's premise and then puts Chili Palmer in the music industry. And I think even the book was meant to be pretty bad, and the the film sucks. So, big cast again, you know, Travolta, Thurman, The Rock, James Woods, Harvey Keitel, Vince Vaughn, Christina Milian, Stephen Tyler of Aerosmith fame, oh. Cedric the Entertainer. It's a who's who, mate. And Diane DeVito pops up briefly as well. It's just really inert. Uh, that was an extra movie when I was out. Rented really well, despite my warnings to customers. I was like, if you like Get Shorty, man, I'm telling you, just watch Get Shorty again. You don't need this. No one does. And yet they still they still rented. Oh, it rented really well, yeah. Flew. But The Rock, I remember a lot of people, because this was like, what, 2005? 2005, yeah. This was like, The Rock obviously was still in that kind of, you know, transition into movies. He'd yet to become franchise Viagra, as he has christened himself. He's yet to, he yet to become, like, the future president of America. Like, he, he was not as huge and beloved uh, as he would be now. So people were still kind of regarding him with a bit of suspicion and kind of deriding him quite a lot. But all all the critics, man, across the board were like, this film sucks, but this guy's got something. Um, another film, I feel, that may have rented well in Exhibition back in the day, Law Abiding Citizen. Yeah, I wasn't still in Exhibition when this movie came out, but I remember seeing it on the posters and stuff when Exhibition was still a thing, and I'd say it probably did, yeah. Basically, this like, is an ugly, ugly film. It's a fucking revolting film. So I'm ass- this movie had to be... Influenced by Saw Hugely. and Hostel. Yeah. And it's just like, what if we took that genre, the, the torture porn genre of horror, and turned it into a cat and mouse, know, a cat and mouse thriller? thriller. Oh, this movie is deplorable. It's disgusting from its opening sequence, where like basically Jerry Butler plays a guy, and his wife and child are murdered. I believe the wife is also raped for good measure. This is the kind of film that you're dealing with. Uh, and then, effectively, he disappears. Jamie Foxx is a cop. Um, Butler blames the system for letting these guys go. He gets the guys, kills them horrifically, or at least stages their deaths horrifically, and then basically like starts picking off people one by one because it turns out he's like some kind of like super architect genius engineer man, and it's insanely graphic and nasty and really mean spirited throughout. I don't know who we're supposed to root for. No, I like the. I, it's weird. They it is you're supposed to be behind for Butler. For, like, most of it. And then it's only kind of in, like, the last third where you're like, oh, no, maybe. There's, there's a sequence, like, halfway through it. Because, like, he it kind of gives himself up and goes to prison, like, in like in the early portion of the movie. But is controlling. He's he's the puppet master while being in there. It's like the Joker. Yeah, he, he wanted to get caught. <laughs> Remember that trope? Yeah, where it's just like, he wanted to. That trope was around from 2008 until about 2014. It's yeah. Like, if I see another film. Skyfall. It's, like, Avengers. Loki does it. Yep. There's loads more I'm not thinking of right now, but it was, for so long, it was like he wanted to get caught. Okay, grand. The Skyfall one, all the way, because I enjoy Javier Bardem in that movie. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a sequence in Law Abidances where, like, Butler has this thing where he basically tells the authorities that he has buried alive uh, one of the attorneys who was involved in the trial. And if you go to this location at this time, exactly, you'll get this person, yada, yada. And there's some fucking around by a handful of seconds, which results in the person dying. But during this, Butler's in, like, his cell, and he asks for a steak to be delivered. And the steak, with the bone in. With the bone in it. And he's got this kind of, like, yeehaw, rock and roll, big cellmate dude who, like, wants to eat it instead. And Butler's like, work away, mate. I think Superstition by Stevie Wonder is playing during this. There's definitely some popular song and Butler... It soon kicks into Numel territory, though. Oh, does it? Yeah. 
<laughs> I can't remember it that well. I did, yeah, that actually makes a bit more sense. I just remember a sequence where like Butler takes the bone out of the stake and walks over to your man and then proceeds to stab him in the neck about 19 he times. He shanks him into oblivion to engine number nine by Deftones. Oh, wow. I mean, this film is... This film is gross. I kind of want to rewatch it. I did rewatch it last year and it's really, really... I don't know. I don't even know why I was doing it. It's one of those ones where it's like, why? There's nothing here. Um, yeah, it's 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 horrible. And somehow that led to Fast and Furious Eight, or is there one before? No, that? no. So straight out of Compton. Yeah. So straight out of Compton kind of puts him back on a. It was a massive success. Uh, it was made at Universal. Um, he'd worked with Vin Diesel. So um, Justin Lin left the Fast and Furious franchise, and James Wan came in for number seven, and so needed for number eight. So he came in and delivered a, like a fine one. I kind of feel like these movies are bordering on the Marvel where it's just kind of you yeah. put all the people in a room together and you'll get a passable film. Yeah, I don't really know the spin-offs that are coming. I like the Fast and Furious franchise. I I I I think it's still well intentioned and has a lot more going for it than people might give it credit for. Uh ultimately it, they're on an incredible tear from 5 through 7 aka when the franchise starts to actually get good. But it kind of dropped the ball a bit. It was grand, but it felt leaden. It felt a bit shit looking. Yeah. And it was F. Gary Gray. When he was announced, I was like, oh, bollocks. Because Lynn was great. Juan did a phenomenal job. Apparently apparently filming this movie broke him, though. So he was like, I'm done. Uh, just get Justin Lynn back for the last two guys. You know, just you know, just, just, just get him back. I think, yeah. And I, I, think, I, I think F. Gary Gray seems like a nice dude, but he's workmanlike. And I kind of feel like he, for, the, for those kind of movies, they seem to... A bit like the Mission Impossible films, they start with a set piece and kind of work backwards. So, in that sense, you need a good action director, and it's not really something that you could say about F. Gary Gray. What, he's, what's he doing next? I think he signed on to something. He's doing Men in Black International. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's coming out soon. Liam Neeson on the press junk of the tour again. <laughs> no, I don't think he'll be allowed <laughs> no. somehow. I swear he was signed up for something else as well. Like, he's got something coming out not too long after that one. But Oh, he has been linked to doing a... Um, adaptation of do you remember Mask oh yeah the, the Mask Crusaders I mean that's what a weird filmography yeah again like he he seems to be a studio guy he seems to be in with Universal and he's just kind of like bouncing from studio to he's studio taking going for hire yeah. yeah fair enough uh, okay so before we get to what we're doing next on this show uh, I have a little quiz for you alright okay so one second so F. Gary Gray um, he was the first black director to play to break a billion at the box office. So we're going to play a little box office game. Would okay. you, we're talking globals. All right. How much money do you think F. Gary Gray movies have made at the box office? Well, you've told me over a billion. So he, he broke a billion with the uh, Fast and Furious 8. Sorry, that's what I meant to say. As in that film made a billion? Made over a billion at, a bo- at the box office. Wow, Jesus. So like they, they have been making mad money since 7. Oh, wait, so am I, am I going through his films and guessing how much money they made? You know, I want a total. All of them together. <laughs> so he's made... We've gone through them all there. Okay, so, can I get the exact billion that Fast 8 made? Um, It was about 1.2 1.2 billion. Somewhere between 1.2 and 1.3. Okay, so his grand total of money, of money... Okay, I would say he's made... 1.75 billion. You're incorrect. He has made just shy of two billion. Okay, I was going to say office. that, but then I thought like the first two were like very indie movies. And, very like, indies. Um, where's lo- the money? Yeah, Straight Outta Compton probably did like two hundred law audiences and did pretty well. Italian Job did pretty well. Did pretty well. Mm. Um, 
So I wanted to compare him to some other directors, um, potentially with making movies around the same time and with about the same amount of film. So you're looking at like a couple either side of 10. So I've got a few directors for you and we're going to play a little higher or lower. Okay, you love higher or lower. Who doesn't? <laughs> Me. <laughs> um, so we're going to start off with Paul Greengrass. So Paul Greengrass made a lot of Bourne films. Do you want to go higher or lower? Than F. Gary Gray's... Than one, F. Gary Gray. 1.8 billion. 1.98 billion. 1.98 billion. Has Paul Greengrass made more money than this? Yes. He has not. He has not. No, he's only made 1.537 billion. Go home, Paul Greengrass. <laughs> Your boy, David Fincher. Oh, he is my boy. Makes a lot of R-rated films. Yeah. What has he's, he's not a franchise guy. Yes. Yeah, there's no way he's over two billion. Lower. Incorrect. Two point one three billion. Jesus. So all his films have done really, really well. Like Christ. In the the three hundreds, like um, Gone Girl, probably cleared like four hundred million. It was like a really big success. Okay. Um, Good movie. Make another one, Dave. Antoine Fuqua, <laughs> the legend himself. Yeah. Two Equalizer films. Yeah, I actually I watched the Equalizer too. Did I tell you that? Um, I did watched, not. I watched it. Oh my god. I mean, like fucking hell. Like I I didn't I didn't realize that like I forgot it's been so long since I watched the first Equalizer which is such a you, you love these movies like, I will say this right I don't love the second I have a soft spot for the I first. will say like Denzel remains a compelling screen presence and I hope that he's making that Macbeth movie um but like essentially I forgot from the first film that like Denzel Washington is playing one of the cinema's biggest psychopaths I've ever seen like this is a character who fucking kills people oh he they get done. Oh my god, spoilers for The Equalizer. I mean, at the end of the film, he faces off against four lads, right? In uh, a hardware shop. Or is no, this, oh, this in, the second in number one. two? Yeah, no, the second one, so he faces off against four military lads. Uh, spoiler alert for the movie, one of whom is played by Pedro Pascal of Game of Thrones fame, and my god, were they like trying to beat his death in that movie. Like, Denzel is just taking dudes out in the most horrific of ways, and then when he finally kills Pedro Pascal, like... Like, it's disgusting. Like, he just like, puts a fucking, like, gouges his eye, which, you know, nice callback there. Like, stabs him a whole bunch. The raid style. Like, he's, like, lifting the fucking knife up. I think he rams it into his fucking head as well, like Tommy Lee Jones Under Siege style. Also, right, I read the Wikipedia plot summary after watching this movie, because sometimes I do that. And whoever wrote the plot summary, because they're always so matter of fact, right? Yeah. Literally... It says, like, describing the ending sequences, like, it says how Denzel, like, takes down the guys. It goes, you know, uh, blows one up, whatever, and then it goes, butchers another. And I was like, yeah, he fucking does. <laughs> that film is viciously, disgustingly bad in many ways. So, has Anton Fuqua with two equalizer movies, Training Day, Tears of the Sun. What else has Fuqua done? Um, He has... Is he King Arthur as well? Oh, he was, yeah. yeah. Which, uh, again, third mention from Michael Pope was an extra who showed up to be in that movie, and I don't think he made the final cut. Uh, yes, I will say Anton Fuqua has made more than $1.98 billion. Uh, Incorrect. Fuck. 1.35. Whoa, Jesus Christ. I'm really off today. Uh, James Mangold, custodian of the later uh, Wolverine films. Logan, the Wolverine. Uh, 310 to Yuma. Give me some of his 90s output. Girl Interrupted. Oh, God. Box office smash. 
Yeah, no, there's no way. Oh, then again, I don't know. Like Logan and the Wolverine, surely they're big. Logan was overrated, did very well. Lower. Correct. 1.76 billion. Get in. And the last one, uh, Lily and Lana Wachowski. Oh, wow. Gotta be bigger. Like Matrix alone, that trilogy. Like it's fucking gigantic, right? So I'm going to say higher. You're correct in saying higher, but just barely. Just 2 billion. That's it. Really? Yeah, the Matrix movies didn't make a lot of money. Really? Yeah. It, Wait, so what they, did? They, they, they did. Speed Racer? Well, so when I say not a lot, um, Reloaded made like 750 million, which wow. is like a lot back then. It's kind of like that would be a failure now. And um, the original made about 400 revolutions, big drop off to like 400. And then, yeah, Speed Racer, like none of them are doing that that well. Mm. Uh, would you like a fourth Matrix movie? Um... I don't necessarily know if I need one, but yeah, I'd, I'd probably go back for that. It's like, it's an interesting franchise. Yeah, I'd go. Big green popcorn. <laughs> um, but what movie are we doing next? You've picked it. I don't know what it is. So, for our next movie, we're doing our first fiction movie. Okay. So, on the next No Popcorn... Are we going to play a trailer? Right now? And then, like, the listener will hear it before I will? That's what yeah. we did last time. Oh, is it? That, okay. could be our, that could be our awkward signature. Sure. Let's play a bit of a trailer gentlemen you're trapped things have gone south it won't end well you can't keep us here man you gotta let us go we're not keeping you you're just staying shoot who is left let him bleed get ready to run here we go Fucking hell. Yes. Oh my god. Uh, dude, I have been like looking for a reason to rewatch this. So and oh my god. I next time myself oh. and yourself will be uh, loading up the white van, <laughs> siphoning some petrol and heading out to the Pacific Northwest to catch the Ain't Rights and Cowcatcher and answering one of the great questions of our time. Is it okay to punch a Nazi in the face? I can't wait. I can't wait to do this. Like Green Room is a film that I have not gone back to uh, for reasons that may or may not be obvious. And I've always wanted to. Even though it's not that long ago. It's what, three years I think at this it's, stage? Uh, three years, 2016. Okay, okay, yeah. This is a great choice. And 95 minutes. So if, anyone, if anyone's been kind of watching along with the movie so far, we've kind of had very long ones. So consider this just like an easy evening for I you. think it's on Netflix or at least it was it certainly was but then Straight Outta Compton was on Netflix and I was like it's definitely on Netflix and then it wasn't Yeah. so I definitely borrowed a DVD copy from a friend in a pinch last night that's what happened listener uh, yeah seriously if you've never seen Green Room fucking watch Green Room and we'll be back very very soon right about now NWA court is in full effect Judge Dre resigning in the case of NWA versus the police department, the prosecuting attorneys are MC Red, Ice Cube, and Easy Motherfucking E. Order, order, order. Ice Cube, take the motherfucking stand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help your black ass? You goddamn right. But won't you tell everybody what the fuck you gotta say? Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it back because I'm brown. And not the other color, so police think. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Competition never waits. 
Take your gear on the go with a custom pack built to protect it. Because any place can be an arena. Game on. The Tumi Esports Capsule. Available on Tumi.com and select Tumi stores. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.